0: evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Charlton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest print edition uh, on uh, street corners in our outdoor news boxes in more than 60 public libraries, independent bookstores, cafes, social movement centers, and other venues in the city. You can also find us online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. I'm joined today by my co-host, Amber Gagarian.
1: Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org.
0: We've got another packed show for today. In our first segment, we're going to get a perspective from Mexico on the continuing surge of migrants from South America to the United States as well as on Mayor Adams' recent visit to Mexico, Ecuador, and Colombia to discourage migrants from journeying north.
1: In our second segment, we'll hear from Carl Miller and the Independent's Ted Hamm. 42 years after he was convicted of an infamous murder of a Crown Heights rabbi, Carl Miller is seeking exoneration from the Brooklyn DA's office. Ham wrote about Carl's case in the current print edition of The Independent, and we'll talk about why his condition, conviction should be overturned. And later in the show, John and I discuss the shocking events in Israel and the Gaza Strip from the past few days and what may lie ahead. There's a lot to unpack there.
0: But first, we t- turn to Mayor Eric Adams' recent journey to Latin America to discourage migrants from coming to New York City. On the final leg of his trip, he visited migrants in Colombia who were about to enter the Darien Gap, the 70-mile stretch of dense jungle that connects South America to Central America and a, a favored route for smuggling people north. He was greeted by migrants waving signs telling him to go back to his home in New Jersey. Of course, our mayor lives in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and by and he was also greeted by Emmanuel Lazarus, a longtime New York City activist who currently lives in Colombia
2: help if these people really understood what you were doing they would protest you mayor adams is making it more difficult to help people the new york immigration coalition which represents migrant communities in new york has made many statements including last week against what he has done mayor adams is not your friend he is not here to help he is using these people as a prop for press photographs last thursday President Biden decided, after promising that he would never do this, to build the wall with Mexico to keep everyone out and militarize the border. He has started direct flights from the United States to Caracas to send people back to Venezuela, something that not even President Trump was willing to do.
0: That was New York City activist Emmanuel Lazarus speaking at a protest in Colombia.
1: Joining us now to discuss our mayor's great discouragement tour and much more from south of the border is Laura Carlson. She is the director of MEDA, Feminism and Democracies, a Mexico City-based think tank formerly known as the America's Program of the Center for International Policy. Laura has lived and worked in Mexico for more than 30 years and has been the independent chief Mexico correspondent for the past decade. Laura Carlson, welcome to WBAI Radio.
3: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to be here. Absolutely.
1: So first, let's start out with your reaction to um, the recent visit from Mexico, from Eric Adams to Mexico, Ecuador and Colombia, and then what activist Emmanuel Lazarus was saying who we just heard um, in that clip.
3: I think that the activists really reflected, uh, the point of view of immigrants. These kinds of visits do not help in the least, and they do a great deal of damage. What we're seeing Eric Adams do is really tantamount to what the Southern, um, to what the Southern governors did to New York City by pulling a publicity stunt of sending migrants up from the border into the, into the city, and trying to create chaos in order to gain political points i think this is very similar what we're seeing with this trip to mexico ecuador and colombia in mexico he talked about this didn't use the word maybe invasion but certainly the images there 117000 migrants that have come to uh new york city in the last year and what are we going to do about this and this is such a huge problem without almost any reference whatsoever to what the reality of migratory flows to the United States is, and that reality is that they're a huge boon to the economy. There is a capacity to integrate these people to into the United States economy, into the cities, but it has to be based on compassion and not dissuasion. So these kinds of trips of going down and trying to tell people who are in desperate conditions, who are fleeing conditions that are intolerable for any human being, for anyone who's trying to raise a family, conditions of violence, conditions of repression, conditions of hunger. You know, that they simply shouldn't come is is extremely inhumane and it's naive politically as well. And again, I think it really has to do with political grandstanding rather than trying to find any real solution to the challenges of migratory flows in the region.
1: And And it's sort of not being honest with those people, right, because their best option still is to come to the U.S. as far as their personal safety goes in most cases.
3: That's right. In many cases, it is true. And people exaggerate what's called the pull factor, which means the, the number of people who are coming to the United States because they think they have a chance at the American dream. In many cases, these, in most cases, and we know this from millions of testimonies over the years, what we're talking about here is a forced migration. It's not like I want the American dream for my family. It's like we, I can't, remain here another day. Sometimes people n- n- receive threats from gangs and they literally have to leave from one day to the next. So to just go down and say, I'm the mayor of New York City, don't come to my city, is, is really another way of saying what globalized world is saying to these people already. We don't want you anywhere. We want you to disappear. And nobody should be told that in any circumstances, as well as that kind of a statement, that kind of a policy violates all known international human rights standards.
0: Right. And uh, you're uh, based in Mexico City. You've been there for over 30 years, longtime observer of Mexican politics and social movements. Uh, How is is this migrant surge uh, playing in Mexico? How are people responding to it, uh, both for better and worse?
3: Well, first off, no one likes to call it a surge, and there's a lot of data regarding whether it is indeed a surge or not. The right wing um, favors an image of an invasion from the South with serious racist undertones, if not overtones, you know, the brown tide coming into the United States. A recent study that was based on demographic, de- demographic data showed that, in fact, this year there are two million Fewer immigrants in the United States than the, what was predicted in 2017 for the percentage to be by 2023. Um, we're seeing a lot of of people who are being counted as immigrants crossing the border, the number of immigrants crossing the border, when because of the policies that are in place, many of those crossings are repeat crossings. They're people who are trying to get to their family. They're being deported with expedited deportations. They're crossing again and again to just try to reach their goal of getting to the United States and finding a job. And in many cases, as I say, actually family reunification because part of their family, an essential part of their family already lives there. So it's not at all clear that there's even such a surge going on. We do see here in Mexico that there are a large number of immigrants coming through Mexico. And we do see that there's a huge accumulation at the border because also, as you may know, you know, Mexico agreed again to take back Um, migrants from the United States, including from countries that aren't Mexico, you know, and to, to participate in the increase in deportations that we're seeing now. And that, that story of how Mexico has bent over in terms of following the immigration, anti-immigrant policies of the United States since the Trump administration, even under an aggressive, uh, progressive also aggressive in the case of migrants, government here is another story in itself that's, that's, that's worth talking about. But for now, what we know is that there seems to be an opening up that happened in the Darien gap. The Darien gap between Canada, Colombia and Panama is one of the most dangerous and horrendous parts of a migrants travels from the south from south america up to the united states and uh there's from what we're hearing there was a number of of agreements made there was a number uh, with, including with the organized crime because it's kind of a no man's land as well um and that it's become a bit safer for people and so a lot of especially the venezuelan migration that's become a big deal at the border is what they call remigration. it means that people who had originally already settled in colombia are now re-migrating up to try to get into the United States. I mean, the fact that it's based, or the argument that it's based on the U.S. government first opening up temporary protective status, which many people really need, and then sort of closing it down and creating false expectations, again, it doesn't take into account the full reality. People are not necessarily going, people will go up. If they're in dire situations, even if they really don't have a reason to believe that they have a chance of legally getting into the United States. And they'll do that because they have no other options. The human human nature, you know, is set up to survive. And that's what so many of these migrants and their families, because we're seeing a huge increase in the migration of women and children as well, are doing.
1: Right. Um, I'll never forget one time when I was working down on the border talking to this woman and her children and they were from Guatemala and they were in a very violent situation and they had left. They got put in jail. This is very common, put in jail in Mexico for a month. They got out of jail um, and they were deported back to Guatemala after that and then they left again immediately after and that just really struck me like you must have had to leave because i could see her all day with her kids she was a good mother you know what i mean anyway i want uh laura for you to talk a little bit more about the actual the treacherous journey so we have the darien gap which got safer um and then a lot of times people are on train on bus actually walking through the desert at some parts can you update us on what it's like for migrants going through mexico right now um, I heard that they maybe closed down the train that a lot of migrants were using to travel right, right. and some okay. other things and how different community groups um, are sort of responding to them. Um, if, what kind of organization around that there is um, where we know the Mexican government, as you said, um, has been complying with a lot of the U.S.'s wishes.
3: Yeah, well, we've been in close touch with uh, some of the shelters and, of course, looking at some of the policies Every time there's this frankly stupid policy change like we've seen lately, it affects it affects thousands of people's lives in a tragic way. So let's look at this journey. For people who are coming up from the south, that is, Further south than Central America, which is a huge part. Central America, of course, is a huge part of the forced migration. Coming back into the South, the report was that over the past year, there have been 417,000 people who have come through the Darien Gap. The fact that it's safer doesn't mean that it's safe. It's got, uh, it's, it's known for a whole slew of, of threats. And risks for migrants from poisonous snakes to dehydration to organized crime. You know, it's 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 a very dangerous region even now. Then you get to Mexico, and since recently, with the the agreement with uh, the U.S. government, there's an agreement to deport people from Mexico. Uh, some of those direct flights to Venezuela are coming through here. Um, although now I was recently hearing from someone who is close to that situation that Venezuela isn't accepting those flights, I'm not sure what the situation is, but uh, we're also seeing that they're accepting people back who can't get their asylum hearings or who are waiting for their hearing, their asylum hearings. It's kind of a de facto version of remain in Mexico that was actually supposedly struck down a Trump era policy it's it's kind of a a way of coming back to a lot of those trump era policies without calling them by their names what we're seeing now with what biden's doing so they in this crackdown because it is a crackdown on migrants in mexico as a result of this latest agreement uh they have um prohibited migrants from using the train and they're actually cracking down again on it there's been uh the deployment of troops to go after migrants throughout the country. There's videos that have been verified in the, in social medias that show migrants. And this gives you an idea of the desperation and the courage that it requires to take up this journey. And especially with your family, they show groups of migrants walking onto the train tracks at night in front of an oncoming train and actually forcing that train to stop. They don't even know if it's going to stop or not, but they're there with their bodies um, on the train tracks, forcing them to stop. So the trains are responding by stopping and then oftentimes, you know, diverting routes or that kind of thing. But this is a hardship as well, because whereas they used to be able to travel on cargo on cargo trains in very dangerous situations, but right, right. Make more time, you know now now they're now they're on foot, all of the shelters are overwhelmed uh they're getting no support from the state in any way, shape, or form. They're getting no support from the state in the United States. The programs to supposedly process asylum requests in the South in other countries are really not functioning. Um, the asylum hearings are way backed up. There's a virtual denial of the right to asylum in the United States. So yeah. it's a situation that just gets worse. Yeah.
0: Right. And, um, we, we have just a couple more minutes here, but can, um, uh, we heard Emmanuel Lazarus talking about the New York immigration coalition, which is a coalition of something like 200 groups here in New York city, um, representing different communities. What, What what is sort of the I guess the sort of social movement uh, uh, ecosystem in in Mexico City or not just Mexico City in Mexico uh, that is uh, uh, stepping up uh, for the migrants?
3: Well, there there have been many years of uh, binational. Contacts in order to make contact, like with that New York coalition, which is one that's been in close close contact with us. And then here there's the infrastructure of civil society, which is all the shelters that provides basic humanitarian services to migrants where the states don't. And then as far as policy, there's constant policy work and coordination and thinking about what could really be done to solve the problem, but unfortunately it doesn't get a lot of traction. In Mexican politics, making migrants suffer doesn't seem to be something that has a high political cost still. Uh, and as we see more migrants coming in, we're seeing a rise in the kind of racism that you see in the United States.
0: Mm. And and last of all, uh, can you tell us a little bit about more about uh, your group, uh, MIRA, uh, recently uh, changed uh, its name and uh, is uh, really uh, leaning into and emphasizing uh, more of a feminist analysis.
3: Yeah, thanks, John. We have been working as a progressive foreign policy center of analysis and action as the Americas program for more than 40 years. And we just last week changed to MIRA, Feminism's and democracies will be doing the same kind of work, looking at problems like immigration, uh, like regional integration, but from a specifically feminist perspective. And um, look, we have a group of analysts throughout the region, throughout Latin America that are writing about this. We have an intersectional feminist analysis that also looks at indigenous peoples carefully, what's happening with Afro-descendants in the country. So we're really looking forward at going a level deeper in terms of how we see not just international relations between states, but also between peoples and how international solidarities can help to resolve some of these problems like what's happening to migrants today.
0: Great. Well, Laura Carlson, we thank you so much for joining us on the Independent News Hour on uh, WBEI. And, and we're looking forward to your next article for us, which will be in our November issue. We always appreciate all your work uh, in Mexico.
3: That's right. And thanks. It's always a pleasure to be on the show and to be in contact with the Independent.
0: Great. Um, so uh, let's see here before we uh, go to the break. Uh, uh, speaking of uh who is entitled to live here on this land and who is an immigrant it was indigenous people's day yesterday and on randalls island uh, indigenous peoples from hawaii the philippines nigeria and many other uh, places uh, as well as tribes recognized and free from the u.s and new york were there for the the long weekend and independent news hour reporters Elias Guerra and Kimberly Iser recorded some of the music from that day. We're going to listen to the music and we'll come back afterwards. These are some of the songs from the dancers from the Southern Filipino group Kinding Sindao who performed a traditional dance to this song. The next two songs are from different groups from the water ceremony which took place Monday morning. with uh, what we call a victory song to remind everybody that we're still here. That was music from yesterday's Indigenous People's Day celebration held on uh, Randalls Island in the East River uh, here in New York City, uh, recorded by uh, Elias Guerra and Kimberly Isar. We thank them for that. And you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM, your peace and justice community radio station uh, here in New York. Uh, For our uh, next segment, uh, we're going to uh delve into uh a uh a a long time uh, really injustice in the criminal uh, justice system here in New York uh, the case of uh Carl Miller uh he was convicted of a murder in 1980 of a prominent rabbi in Crown Heights uh so much of the evidence points that somebody else uh did it uh the police uh, knew who that person was and went down uh Probably the wrong path. And Carl Miller spent uh, over 30 years behind bars. He was released in 2010. And in Independence Ted Ham has been following uh, this case. He wrote a, a really outstanding feature story in our current print, print edition called "Waiting for Exoneration." And uh, uh, Amba and I we spoke with both uh, Ted and Carl Miller earlier today about the case and the prospects of Carl getting exoneration and the latest developments around that. Ted Hamm and Carl Miller, welcome both of you to the Independent News Hour. Thanks, John. Hey, good
2: afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon.
0: Uh, right. It's so good to have both of you uh, with us. Uh, Ted, let's start with this uh, case uh, where Carl Miller was uh, convicted uh, of murder in nineteen eighty. Of a very prominent rabbi In, in uh, Crown Heights Can you just give us the synopsis of this case And why you think uh, The guilty verdict all those years ago uh, Was a, gr- a grievous uh, Mistake
4: Sure so it was uh, Late October of 1979 As you say And uh, Rabbi David Akunov Who's a, a Soviet exile Soviet Union exile uh, Was Was it was an armed robbery, and he was murdered on Montgomery Street in Crown Heights. And uh, the only thing taken from him was a prayer bag with a prayer shawl uh, and a couple other items, but no money. So it's just a completely senseless um, murder. And uh, made the front page of the New York Post the next day. There was a big spread in the Daily News, the New York Times. Covered it, which they didn't always cover murders back in that time, uh, to this day. Um, and um, so this was a big deal. And um, the original suspect was a guy named Daryl Brown, who actually was a friend of Carl's at the time. And um, make a long story short, they uh, police a moved their investigation shifted from. Daryl Brown to Carl because, because, uh, Daryl Brown said Carl did. There was a lot of circumstances of that, um, identification that I couldn't bring into the story, but it happened while Daryl Brown was in the hospital and things like that He had been shot and so on. So it's really a dubious identification. And two witnesses, two eyewitnesses, one who saw the murder and one who saw, uh, Daryl or someone running towards the building where Daryl Brown was, um, uh, arrested, uh, neither of those eyewitnesses identified Carl Miller in a lineup. And Carl identified or uh, volunteered for a lineup, which, as I mentioned in the story, is um, not usually done by someone who uh, potentially stands to be identified. Right? And that's a sign that they're confident in their innocence. Um, so anyway, so, uh, September 1980, Carl goes to trial, jury of 11 whites and one black. Um, uh, convict him and um, he's then sentenced to uh, 25 to life. Is that correct, Carl? Yes, it is. Okay, so it's 25 to life and um, he begins to go before the parole board in 2004 and maintains his innocence and his, that, that process repeats in 2006 and 2008 and he is rejected each time Um, and finally in 2010, he, he gains parole. Um, and, uh, so that's the nutshell. In in a nutshell, that's his 30 plus years. He went to Rikers after being arrested in fall of 79. So it was 30 plus years incarcerated, uh, mostly upstate at, uh, Greenhaven and Sing Sing among other places. Um, so, uh, the whole time he maintained his his innocence and, uh, then he came out, he, he, go ahead.
2: When I came out, when I was released in 2010.
4: Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. I thought, uh, okay. The, um, so the CF, after he came out, after Carl came out, um, he, he then, uh, eventually, contacted the conviction review unit of the DA's office, and they launched an initial investigation. Closed that investigation. Uh, then they um, a few a few years ago, you began Carl began working with a lawyer named James Henning and his private investigator Dan Levine, and um, in the course of that. They, they, they were able to get the DA's conviction review unit to open a second investigation. And they found, um, out the, among other things, that there were other suspects um, on the prosecutor's radar at the time. And they also found that uh, notorious Detective Louis Scarsella, future Detective Louis Scarsella, was a precinct cop in Crown Heights who was involved in the initial investigation. So that added another layer of intrigue to the story about how the original conviction moved from uh the original, the original suspect moved from Daryl Brown to Carl. Well
0: uh, why is uh Louis Scarsella's presence uh problematic? For people who don't know the story. Of- <laughs>
4: okay. You're throwing me a softball there, John. <laughs> uh, Scarsella is responsible for um 20 convictions that have been reversed either by the Brooklyn D.A.'s conviction Review Unit or judges. Uh, So his handiwork as a detective. So this case, as I said, preceded his um, becoming a detective. Scarcello was not yet a detective, but he was on his way to becoming a detective at the time.
1: And so and quickly, um, Ted, where do things stand now with the Brooklyn DA's office and their review of of Carl's conviction? Is there any, you know, are
4: things closed or things open? Uh, there m- may be some. The um, subsequent to the story coming out, and some I know that some of the players uh, mentioned in the story, including the uh, prosecutor and Scarcella, um, um, have the trial prosecutor that was. Uh, have actually, um, you know, they've seen the story, and, and there may there may be some um, further investigation undertaken by the DA's office. Um, we're sort of, you know, uh, we'll see what happens.
1: Great. And you can read that story on independent.org or in one of our newspapers and newspaper boxes and libraries and other venues around the city for free. Um, But Carl, now we wanted to pivot to you. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about what being incarcerated all that time? uh, How it affected you, particularly, you know, while you were maintaining your innocence?
2: Well, how it affected me, it took me away from my family, it took me away from my son and my daughter, who I didn't have the opportunity to raise. Um, I was serving time for a conviction that I knew that I had not committed. And, you know, when you go inside the prison system, you know, some people would try to maintain like, you know, oh, um, yeah, I did the crime to have this badge of honor because you were in prison. But then those of us who haven't committed a crime, we're going to always maintain our innocence no matter what. So when you go in and you like that, you're up against the challenge of, you know, what do I do? Do I run around here saying that I did something that I didn't do or you continue to maintain your innocence? And that's that's what i done. And, you know, during my incarceration, you know, I went to school, got my GED, went to college, got some college and just kept pursuing. You know the conviction the overturn the conviction wrote to different lawyers many different lawyers suck out um sought out many lawyers and, you know and some responded some didn't you know so you keep going you keep going so throughout the incarceration like i said these are things that i have done you know took some vocational skills i mean vocational classes and things of that nature just to keep myself busy so now, when I go to my first parole board in two thousand four, you know you' face with a dilemma. Do you go in there to get parole and say that oh I'm guilty when you know you're not, so, I went in there and maintained my innocence and said everything that I needed to say. But when you go before a parole board, the only thing that go before the parole board is your sentence minutes. They're not looking at the person as far as what did you do in prison throughout the whole twenty five years? You understand what I'm saying so now. hit me with two years. So I go back in 2006, same story, no remorse. I didn't have nothing to do with it. Hit me with another two years, go back in 2008, same story. Go back in 2010, same story, Then I get parole. And Mm -hmm. once I'm parole, I come out, as Ted said, you know, I wrote to Ken Thompson. I wrote to Eric Adams when he was the Brooklyn Borough president, you know, look at this case, look at this case, there's so many flaws, Sarah Wallace, different people. Different people, and I um, finally ran into James Hennings, and this is where I'm at right now.
1: Yes, Carl, uh, that that it so, seems so so frustrating. I know that in general, the practices that at parole, if you don't say that you're guilty. He's going to stay in. And that's one of the many horrendous sort of norms of the incarceration system. Another one of which I wanted to, you to mention briefly, which is the ability or disability to find work after, but shouldn't be so hard for anyone, even if you did commit a crime. But part, again, particularly if you didn't, I'm sure that's been uh, quite difficult. Can you just talk a little bit about that and, you know, how it leads to recidivism? <laughs>
2: Yeah, what happens with that is I don't know. I know the city they have the law. They used to have a box that you check and you don't check. Have you been incarcerated? Have you been convicted of crime? They supposed to have changed that, but some places, are uh, what we would consider felony friendly, you know, like the parks department in the city transit, uh, sanitation, they're felony friendly, and you know you go take these exams, and sometimes people will look at the you know the thing as far as background checks. Now, once they do a background check, they see that you was convicted of a murder. They can go extensive in that because you can just Google the person's name and you say, oh, this guy was convicted of murdering a a rabbi. Well, you're not going to hire him. They're not going to say that, but they'll push your application to the side. And going through that frustration there, you know, I had to move because parole wasn't giving me a shot to be terminated off of parole while I was out there. I was on parole almost nine years before they terminated my parole. Cause when you are on life parole, you're on life parole. Some people come out with gainful employment, family ties, everything else. You can be terminated off a of parole in three years. But I wasn't terminated off of parole until nine years. So now the same thing applies. I go to get a job and they see that you're on parole. They don't wanna hire you because they don't want parole officers coming to their facility or to their workplace. So in that sense, I did the back to work program. I worked for Fulton Ferry Liquidation. I worked for the Fort Greene Council, the senior citizen, Grace Agard on Fulton. And um, from there, I came up state, and I worked at Pet Boy Auto Plus. So when I get laid off, so, you know, I'm doing unemployment now. So I'm putting in for a different job. Right now, I'm just waiting for UPS to call me back to take the road test for a seasonal job. Good luck. But, but, yeah, thank you. But some... Um, have it good because they go into construction and things of that nature. And they really don't do no background check when you go into construction, but you know, you can get in. But in my case, I believe a lot of times when they did do the background check, these things came up. I took civil service exam for the state. Why would I go take the visual recognition fingerprints? If I'm trying to hide anything, I'm not trying to hide anything, but the conviction is a stigma. It's a right. stigma for gainful employment.
0: One more question for you, Carl, real quick. Uh, in, in, uh, the article, uh, the, in the photo, uh, where you appear, um, uh, on the street corner in Crown Heights, revisiting that neighborhood with Ted, uh, you're wearing a t-shirt that says, from enslavement to mass incarceration. Uh, uh can you talk about that message?
2: That there was a t-shirt that I had bought from the Legacy Museum. Um, and the Legacy Museum founder, I forget his name, Stephen, um, I forget his name, Ted, probably from, know his name.
4: Brian Stevenson.
2: Brian Stevenson. Uh, and he had uh, an uh, equal justice initiative, and he works on wrongful conviction of people who are on death row and stuff like that. So while I was in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, me and my wife visited the Legacy Museum. And I like the T-shirt because I was part of that mass incarceration in the 80s. And you know, so that's, you know, is a t-shirt that I love, you know.
0: Okay. That's a, that's a great backstory. Uh, so, uh, uh, Carl and Ted, we thank you both for joining us today on the independent news hour and we will continue to follow this case. Thank you. Thanks, John. So again, that was Carl Miller and, and the independents, Ted Ham talking about Carl's continuing quest for exoneration on a m- murder conviction conviction uh, he received in 1980. We have a great story about it in our current print edition. Uh, we will come back with more. Uh, Am and I will be discussing the situation in uh, Israel and Palestine uh, after this short music break. No
5: mother, no father to wipe away my tears. That's why I will cry. I feel scared, but I- show my fears I keep my head
1: How is Palestine will be free, recorded in 29 by Mayor Zane. Uh, you're listening to, well, 29. I, I mean, I guess I made up that way of saying it, 2009. <laughs> you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I am your co-host, John omba Grigarian, here with my co-host, John Tarleton. And uh, pretty soon we will talk... Uh, more about what the sun was talking about, what's going on there in Palestine and Israel right now. Uh, but now first, um before we get to that, I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seats and ask you to donate to uh WBAI because that is how we stay on the air. And that is how uh, we are able to provide you the independent news that we do along with all of the other great volunteer radio hosts and producers. Um, and you can volunteer, uh, you could donate one time to the Independent News Hour, or uh, if you have the means to do so, you can become a WBI buddy for $10 a month, which more I think more. many of our listeners can afford. And uh, you get perks. It's it's not just a donation. You get um, a nice WBI tote bag, along with uh, some other member-only benefits. And again, it's 10 or more, so if you have the means to give more, please do. Um, in the spirit of keeping independent media, fully independent radio, the only fully independent radio station alive and well in New York, uh, you can donate either just as a buddy in general or in the name of our show, which would be great. The Independent News Hour to show that we have some um, devoted listeners. And you can do so by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212 212- 209 2950, or go online to give the number two, wbai.org. That's give number two, wbai.org, if you prefer to do it online.
0: Right. And when you give, you make it possible for us to bring you uh, uh, voices from outside uh, the corporate mainstream consensus. We heard from Laura Carlson in Mexico City um, earlier in this show. Uh, we also heard from Ted Hamm and Carl Miller. Carl Miller really giving us, uh, you know, the bird's eye view of what it's like, uh, to, to fight for your innocence when you're inside of prison for decades and what it's like to readjust to life coming out and, and the hurdles that he's faced as, as he's moved forward with his life and as he still pursues, uh, exoneration. And, and Ted's been covering that story. And, and um, you know, at six o'clock, is, um, we're going to have a special uh, crisis in Gaza here on WBAI that will be hosted th- uh, by Phyllis uh, uh Reggie, uh, our board operator, was talking before we came on the air about how WBAI is the opposite of this uh, you know corporate media uh, propaganda juggernaut that kicks into action, uh, especially in moments of international crisis when the U.S. government and, and, and media are really trying to all uh, march us in one direction uh the the situation in israel and palestine is obviously very volatile but it's it's way more complex uh than uh the corporate media lets on and it's so important to have uh voices like WBAI to have a, a station like WBAI that's listener supported has been on the air for 63 years if you can call 212-209 uh 2 uh five zero or go online to give number two WBAI.org. You can become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month, Maybe you can sign up for more 15, 20, 25, $30 dollars a month, that would be incredible. The station is in pretty dire financial need right now. We, this is the time to step up. If you've been holding back a WBAI really needs your support. We cannot lose this station. It would be uh, a tragedy if WBAI were uh, to ever go off the air so please please pick up that phone two one two two zero nine two nine five zero so we still have a, a few minutes here amba and of course i think uh like so many others i think both you and i've been uh really following the news uh from israel palestine uh these past few days uh since uh hamas uh launched that assault on southern uh israel and then that everything that's uh following this um first of all i mean your thoughts yeah your family is from the region uh you're the is it great great granddaughter of uh, survivors of the armenian uh holocaust who themselves migrated to lebanon and egypt so what's your initial reaction to what we're seeing here
1: um you know fear sadness um sort of inevitable Despair and despondency, I think, looking at the potential options for where this can go, to be honest, you know, um, I think as. I think, I can't say for sure, but I think that as a genocide, sir, or as coming from family of genocide survivors, um, maybe it, it hits, hits, it hits extra deep, but maybe that's not true. I don't know. Um, but I think what I'd like to say, uh, uh, more than just sort of bemoaning it is to talk a little bit about the history. And I know that on WBAI, most of our listeners, you know, probably know, but I think one of the biggest issues around this, This this issue uh, around despair and despondency does have to do with the media and knowing that we'll have to be going into these headlines that are so one sided and so myopic that, you know, really never acknowledge history. I've never heard mainstream media talk about the fact that that basically all of what now is known as Israel was was Palestine, you know, up until uh 100 and less years ago. Uh, so it makes it hard when I think a lot of people think that maybe Pal- there's Palestinians and Israelis and these are two separate countries that are fighting each other when that's not the case. Um Obviously, uh, Israel is a Zionist state and sort of a Zionist ideology w- w- was um you know at the core of its founding which is the 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 which is the aspiration for a Jewish national home through the reestablishment of Jewish sovereignty in Palestine to be facilitated by the Jewish diaspora um there started to be Zionists in Palestine about a hundred years ago. Um, and, and then when the state of Israel was formed in 1948, that marks independence for the Israeli. It marks the Nakba day or the catastrophe for Palestinians, uh, during which, um, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but tens of. 750,000 Palestinians were expelled while many others were killed. Um, the territory has been ceded and ceded since then. You can look up maps of Palestinian territory over time and over that occupation. Um, you know, as, you know, uh, people it's know about,
0: it's about f- maybe f- at most 15% of what it was. 100 years ago at most
1: and and I won't go into you know people know about Gaza and the other occupied territories that they're very crowded that it takes a long time to leave that they've already been under the siege of um uh for the last 16 years of sort of intense blockades intense lack of food supplies water supplies that, that children and journalists have been killed often and regularly both by um by the IDF the Israeli defense forces and by some um more more sort of extremists lately and that villages more and more villages have been seized more than ever have villages been seized have Palestinians been killed in recent months under far right uh, PM of Israel Netanyahu. And a lot of people warned when he was elected that something like this was going to happen. And so I think there's a lot of theory about what happened, you know, and, and I'm not saying, you know, it's great that Hamas went out there and slaughtered these people by any means, but I think it's really important to look at where we're coming from, and I think it's important to zoom out and really think about human nature. For me, it's very interesting. You know, we know what a lot of the Jewish people, you know, in Israel either suffered or, or you know, had family members that suffered, and now we see what's going on in Palestine, and I'll pass it over to you, John, in one second, but I want to read something that I think was really interesting in a Mark Levine op-ed for Al Jazeera titled, of violence does not work in Palestine. He said, what has occurred, in parentheses, as I learned in interviews with therapists at few mental health centers in Gaza that exist, and parentheses, is that the passing of trauma with former Fatah prisoners tortured by Israel, then torturing in turn Hamas members Using the same techniques as the Israelis used on them, often even screaming at their victims, these are these are arab speak Arabic speakers in Hebrew while torturing them in the very same rooms where they themselves were tortured. So I'm sorry, it's not bright, but you know, this is the reality, and I think it's important to to speak honestly.
0: Absolutely. And I think
1: and, the last thing I'll add, I'm really sorry, is that this siege underway in Gaza is scary. And people right now with the Gaza's uh, own uh, electricity, they're having four hours a day, but that's not going to last long at all.
0: Right. And, and yeah, it, it the Israeli general uh, yesterday said it was going to be a, a total siege, uh, which is scary because obviously people can't live uh, with especially without water um as well as food and and power um yeah i mean i think in the last couple of minutes here uh the the it was a slaughter on on saturday i mean there's not any way to kind of dance around that uh it, it was an audacious uh move by hamas uh, to break through the seemingly invincible uh uh israeli uh confinement the the wall and uh, all their high tech uh, equipment and in inner southern israel um you know, but uh, they, they killed you know eight, nine hundred people, um, and and that's obviously uh, traumatizing the Israelis who themselves have, as a society, have a lot of blood on their hands for all the uh, killing uh, they've done of Palestinians over the decades, usually uh, without uh, a lot of mass uh, media coverage. I, I imagine uh, you know the bloodletting on Saturday, kind of like what happened here in New York with nine eleven. 9 nine eleven was used to to justify uh, uh, the U S uh, invading Afghanistan and Iraq and twenty years of war in the Middle East. And as terrible as nine eleven was, uh, the things that followed from that uh, were obviously uh, even far more deadly. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, uh, killed in Iraq, in Afghanistan, thousands of U S troops as well. It spurred the creation of ISIS. We'll see what happens here in in, in Gaza i mean obviously uh, the israelis seem uh hellbent on uh you know inflicting maximum uh destruction uh on gaza and um you know we're uh yeah we're gonna be living with the consequences of what, what happened here um i i hope to have an article up on independent.org in the next couple of days really reflecting uh more on this um you know the uh when you think about what happened the the people who live in gaza are the descendants of people who were expelled from towns and villages in southern israel uh in, in 1948 uh, they've now in in recent times been completely uh uh trapped in a open air prison and for many of them this was maybe the first time they've ever been outside of that prison and then when, and when they encountered and the people who lived in on the other side of the wall in southern israel were able to lead comfortable uh, lives uh, that is guaranteed by the Israeli security apparatus it broke down this two sides uh, encountered each other so to speak on Saturday when the, sometimes when the oppressed and they uh, encounter the uh, oppressor it can get really gruesome it's really unfortunate uh, hopefully some way how we can find a way out of this but uh, unfortunately we're probably headed for some tough times looking forward to more analysis from Phyllis Bennis at 6 p.m. with the uh, Gaza uh, crisis uh, special uh, that we're going to be airing on the station. Uh, we need to sign off for now. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks to our uh, board operator, Reggie Johnson. And uh, Amba, what's our final song heading out here?
1: Our last song is Equal Rights and Justice by Peter Tosh.